This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And we My name have is Glenn. Whoa! <laughs> no, they we have, have guests. They're bur- they're barging through the door. Who do we have with us this week? Introduce yourselves. I couldn't help it. I was so excited. My name is Gwen. I'm from the New York Public Library. And my name is Frank, and I'm from the New York Public Library. And we are. Go ahead. Yeah. this is our third time chatting with y'all from uh the librarian is in this is our first time doing it digitally though which is i'm a little sad but schedules are schedules you know me too schedules are schedules babies are babies i know you know it was it was very fun to do it around your kitchen table eating pizza and drinking beer but needs must babies must I just remember being very hungover that day, though, because <laughs> it was a conference. So the night before was like a blur. And then I. Yeah, right. Like, don't blame us for that. I think it was because you were conference partying. right? <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it wasn't you. Your your pizza and welcoming home was wonderful, Craig. Thank you. No, no problem. <laughs> anyway. So this week we are chatting about mm. a book that uh, I think the way it works is I read the book. Gwen and Frank, you both read the book. Yes. Yes. Excellent. Andrew had a child, so he watched the movie yeah. instead. <laughs> I, once again, am playing the part of the kid who watches the movie and tries to pass it off as a book report. That's awesome. That's what you did with Peyton Place. Yes, right. exactly. Uh, Andrew. And I, I see a theme honestly, here, and there was no baby in the picture then, right? No. Am I right? Am I right here? It was practice. There's been a cover-up. Andrew has never practice. read a book for this show. Uh, <laughs> there you go. Thank you, Craig. You heard it here but first. You were saying before we got started, so this is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kesey? Ken Kesey? Ken Kesey? K-E-S-E-Y. Kesey, let's say. Yeah, I, I don't know. So. Um, and you were saying before we started rolling, Frank, that there was a bit of a pattern in the books that we've talked about together. And honestly, I have a response to that. So what is the pattern that you identified, oh, Frank? Oh, so this is, you're setting me up now. Yes, yes. <laughs> All right, fine. I'll, gotcha. I'll, you're our hosts. I'll step graciously into the trap. I was like railing, like the two books we read together that you chose were both like boy books. Like the first was Lord of the Flies. Of course I have to say it, boy books. Boy books. And One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, like predominantly male-driven books sure. with male characters. And then the one Gwen and I picked was Peyton Place, which had very strong female characters. All right, hit me. Well, it's not a trap. I did. I the, the trap is that there's not a trap. But I kind of this was one that was sitting around on our list of like maybe we'll get to this book one day. It's like a title that everyone's familiar with. Me personally, I'd never. I don't think I even knew it was a book. I just thought it was a movie, mm. and I I saw some similarities between it and Peyton Place as like this book that a bunch of people read in the mid 20th century and then was turned into a movie that a bunch of people saw Mm. you know 10 or 15 years later um and i was just kind of curious about that dynamic which is why i also knew it would work for andrew to watch the movie Uh, i Mm -hmm. hope it works we'll see um but i'm just kind of interested in it as a as a piece of 60s culture uh and that felt like a response more to Peyton Place than it was like, let's. I honestly didn't know it was a dude book. I knew precious <laughs> little about this book going into it. Did you guys, okay. how familiar with, were y'all with the book coming That's, you in? You know, it's actually really interesting because I think both this book and Peyton Place are books that kind of like messed things up, right? That like oh. shook things up and kind of disrupted what orderly literature was supposed to be, right? I'm Posi- sorry, I just did a politician thing That's and didn't true. answer the question um, I asked. I just answered what I wanted to <laughs> <Yeah>. say. <laughs> Disruptor. I should say one thing that you guys may or may not know, but as librarians, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is a perennial high school book read. Yeah. And, or early college. But it's mm-hmm. always, it's very often on 
high school reading list, which I think adds a another layer of conversation there uh, aside from like the dude book thing and how male and female characters are treated in this book, which was written in 1962. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and to see why it was on high school, why it is on high school reading lists, like what's the message that they're trying to give to these high school students. So that's another layer if you want to tackle it. Well, and it's also been unchallenged a bunch for that very mm-hmm. reason. It's on that list of like perennially, like why would you read this book yeah. in a high school? There's so much sex and, Sex and cursing in it. Sexing and cursing in it. Sexing. <laughs> um, yeah, I definitely. New York. Don't forget some racial now, right? slurs too. New York well, City. Well, high schools. It it's on the list. Not banned here in New sure. York. Sure. But um, is there a lot of sex in it? Really? There's a, There's lot, a lot of, of sexuality. Sexuality. Yeah. More than more than none sex. More than right? none sex. Yes. Oh, mm-hmm. I thought you went N U N. I was like none. <laughs> I missed what that are you page. About? <laughs> um, okay. So N O N E. We should um, yeah. we should chat about Keezy briefly before we get into the book itself. Okay. Um, Andrew, what do you have anything on him? I have like a basic sketch. Give me the basic sketch. The basic sketch. The Keezy man breezy cover girl. That's oh, all. <laughs> good gracious! The boy was born in 1935. Uh, he passed away in 2001. He puts it as he like was too young to be a beatnik, but too old to be a hippie. Like he really straddled <laughs> the line uh, in terms of artistic generations. He was born in Colorado, grew up in Oregon, studied at University of Oregon, and then went to Stanford for a creative writing program. Um, I found that he eloped with his high school sweetheart, who he credits with like keeping him grounded, which is a thing to say <laughs> about a dude who like drove around the country in a drug bus, like a LS, mm-hmm. an LC. LSD bus, not an LCD bus. No, that's a different. <laughs> that's no. a different thing. I read that too, um, and, and I know that he also he spent time working the the night shift at a mental health facility, and that sort of in that together with his like drug experimentation and the like the movement toward deinstitutionalization that yeah. is a word yep. um, that was happening at the time all kind of converged together in this in this book. Yeah, he was working at like the Menlo Park VA where they were. I guess it was part of MK Ultra, where they were just handing out psychoactive drugs as part of the CIA's test on what psychoactive drugs could do for you. Remember the, the government must have been really chill and cool back in back in the day. That sounds fun. <laughs> well, I mean, LSD was considered like a possible medical drug. I mean, it was like well, we should say that it's the book was written right again. Talk about straddling two times. It was written between the apotheosis of psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, mm. and drugs, and the rise of pharmaceuticals. So it's right between the two times where psychoanalysis was sort of mm. losing s- its supremacy, mm-hmm. and the miracle of pharmaceuticals was coming in. Mm. Well, so, and, the, and the drugs were also making it making like outpatient treatment and like a you know that was part of the deinstitution deinstitutionalization movement <laughs> was that yeah like you said those the drugs were making it easier to to treat people outside of facilities like this and and let them you know live more independent right. lives and i know that it, the you know the the benefits of the movement have been like debated a little bit and there's still a lot of ways that we're failing those people but yeah yeah i, th- I think it's fun just, just to add quickly that in the in the pr- if you read the same edition there's a little one-page um, prologue written by Kesey about the sketches. Mm, nope, that wasn't in my book. Oh, oh hit there's, me. A, there's a one-page piece called Sketches which where he talks about working in the psychiatric facility, but he also says, and I can't believe I read this, if I read this correctly, that he was a patient in the facility, and then he found himself a year later working as an orderly in really? the same facility with the same staff that was over him as a patient. He was now working with wow. as a colleague. Huh. And then he he to sum it up he he finishes that one pair that one page prologue to the book as yeah well it was the sixties <laughs> that's what he says <laughs> he's just like the sixties were nuts man nuts wow so, yeah he was you know he was like part of a group of people who called themselves the merry pranksters mm-hmm. and yeah. drove around on their L- LSD bus and Health. partied with. The Grateful Dead and Neil Cassidy of all people and like Larry McMurtry, who I didn't know was into drug buses. Yeah. Um, 
Ooh, do I you mean, think that was the inspiration for the name of McMurphy's character? Is it really Larry McMurphy? I don't. I don't think so. But Arn. who knows? I think he re- I was wrote this before. He wrote this before. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, he wrote this in '59 and then was published in '62. It became a play in '63, uh, which he did see and liked. And then it became a film in '75, which he never saw. I think because he he didn't. There are a couple objections, and one that I think we'll talk about when we get into the book. He thought Jack Nicholson was too short for one thing. Is, is Jack <laughs> well, Nicholson the '75 version? Yeah, well, yes, the in the film. Version. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which I can see stu- uh, attitudinally, but not physically, as he's described in the book. Yeah. But yeah. we could get to that. Sounds like um, Kesey agreed with you. One thing I just feel like adding is that, in a way, it sounds funny, but like I don't think we can underestimate the the power of drugs like the power yeah. of pharmaceuticals the fact that i don't mean like you know wow drugs but like how <laughs> a society thought this in both ends of society meaning the medical institution and the the hippie could look how they looked at drugs as being literally life-changing saving experiences like mm. this was going to change everything like another revolution really and here we are 50 years later sort of like well hmm did it <laughs> Or yeah, did it leave a wake of, of, you know, unhappiness. Anyway, I, yeah. just just to give that little comment. No, that's interesting. The the kind of like the, and I had not thought about the development of pharmaceutical drugs in in that way, um, because like yes, this feels very much a, of a like, uh, proto hippie drug era, that in my mind growing up that book closed like that was the Woodstock era and then we all did coke in the 80s and then I guess like Bill Clinton became president and we stopped like I don't really know in the 90s we all did surge like we all did just (laughs) very heavily caffeinated sodas yeah we just all got cap and then Red Bull happened what you you missed the ecstasy years you didn't do ecstasy excuse me (laughs) come on now you just buy CBD oil gummies at the drugstore yeah now now we're into the into the commercial weed era And yeah. I suppose I was so real quickly just to de- totally derail the discussion. I was so I was surprised by that. The surprisingly like specific criticism of Jack Nicholson as being too short for this role. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so the people who played uh, McMurphy in the play were Kirk Douglas and Gary Sinise. Whoa. Both of both of them are five nine and Jack Nicholson is five ten. Well, according to Google, according to my googling. Well, so you know, Andrew, the, since you didn't the read the book, yeah, sure. Uh, he, the the style in, of McMurphy. We should probably tell people who are listening, like basically what this book is about. I don't even know what they were talking about. Do, <laughs> we're gonna we get do there. That? We're gonna get there. Okay. Yeah, I'm fine. We're it's still your, doing it's your show, kids. Um, but like, uh, <laughs> McMurphy is extremely like strong and like powerful built, yeah. powerfully built. Um, I mean, size. but his his attitude and and style and delivery of of words is very Nicholson esque. I have to say, I could totally imagine that it was perfect casting. But physically, uh, I don't think Jack Nicholson reads as sort of physically powerful sure, yeah. that this ca- Mark Murphy is I in mean, the book. Even yeah. though I've never seen the movie, it's really hard to get the image of Jack Nicholson yes. as that character out of your head. Yeah. Oh yeah, yep. I could. So, I yeah. actually am going to watch it this weekend. I haven't seen it. The in size thing is years. so interesting though, because size is is something. And sorry if I'm jumping ahead here, but they, the the <clears throat> author plays around with size a lot, right? There's a lot of size as metaphor going on here, where the narrator is somebody who is physically very big, but he feels very small, and then he grows throughout the course of the book. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. it's interesting that that's what the criticism was focused on. Because size is so relative, <laughs> right? That's and why I'm it's just, a I'm dude just... book because size matters. There apparently, <laughs> I'm just confused that you know why he saw the play and liked it, but then one of his criticisms of the movie was that he didn't like Nicholson, like because his stature didn't match. Yeah, and it's not like like Gary Sinise is a right. ripped like right. hulking specimen of humanity. Like I don't. <laughs> Right. Why wouldn't he object to both of them on that ground? Casey could have been just being obnoxious and like, you know, the heck with Hollywood. He was, you know, a little bit like he could have been just as dismissive of Hollywood, period. You know, yeah, he there was there were reports that he also like fought about his advance for the film Mm. and things like that. Right. So who knows? He blown this thing wide open. Yeah. I I Um, think I could imagine Nicholson in this movie over almost any other actor of that period, really. Yeah. 
let's get into the book. What, who wants? In. Who wants to do the like top line intro? <laughs> Gwen, what, Gwen what, you're a pro at this. Come on. Yeah. I'm, what I'm What is the to... setup for this book? Okay. So the setup, I, I kind of just want to be like, dudes are doing dudes things, <laughs> and women are doing bad things to the dudes, and that's what this book is about. <laughs> the setting is a uh, mental hospital in Oregon. It is an interesting blend of very old school techniques, uh, like... Um, electroshock therapy like lobotomy um, and drugs are sort of just coming into the picture and you kind of are introduced to these bigger wider larger themes that we're starting to talk about by uh, the people who are on the ward and so our narrator told it's the stories told in first person the narrator is um, a guy who's nicknamed chief broom because he sweeps up his real name is brom chief bromden bromden, bromden. bromden. yeah yeah um, and we learn a lot about what's going on in his head and a lot about his backstory. Um, but he also is kind of a great narrator for this book because he's a more reliable narrator than some of the other patients might be uh, because he is pretending to be um, to not speak and to not hear. And so he adds a lot to the story of his own observations um, because a lot of people are saying things and doing things that he is privy to because they think that he can't understand them right um and so there's this sort of big disruptive force who's this dude mcmurtry no mcmurphy i'm gonna do that the whole time (laughs) (laughs) Um, mcmurphy jack nicholson or not um who comes to the ward and begins to really disrupt things and he is portrayed as sane probably we think it's up for interpretation but my reading of it was that he was sane. he was on the ward because he's trying to get out of his prison sentence um at a work camp and he thought that that being in a mental ward would be easier than working the fields and so he comes and begins to really mess around with everyone on the ward especially nurse ratchet who is the embodiment of evil womanly evil um, the big the nurse, nurse of the, ward. the big nurse, capital yeah, big B, nurse. capital N. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Big in a lot of senses of the word. Frank is making gestures. I made a gesture. You figure it out. <laughs> 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 if you read the book, you'll know. And I think these boys know what I'm talking about. Yeah, we know what you're talking about. That's my boy hey, dudes. Boy books. Well, so, boy so books. Before we get into it, Craig, let's read a boy book. <laughs> All right. We get sound into... like Fonzie. I know. <laughs> I know. It's good. You're really fr- the New York Public Library is really here. <laughs> hey, everybody. Hope you're enjoying the show. Andrew, are you enjoying the show? <laughs> I'm enjoying it a lot, but why did you make it so weird just now? Well, because it's a weird ad break energy that I have going on right now. Yeah, this is true. All right, I hope you, I hope everyone at home is enjoying the episode we recorded with uh, Gwen and Frank from The Librarian is In. Yeah. Uh, we did it a few weeks ago, back in a tireder time of my parenting <laughs> adventure. But we're here now, and it's still a good episode. <laughs> it's still a good episode. Okay, so Craig, tell me, I've heard about the water cooler. Yeah. And how people gather around it and talk about stuff. And so I went to talk about stuff around the water cooler with people. And they were talking about like these electronic pages that people have now. It's like a it's like a magazine or like a billboard or something, but it's on the internet. And you know, I'm hopeless with with tech, so could you just like help me figure this out? What's the deal with these e pages? Yeah, so you're a big tech idiot, but thankfully there are tech geniuses over at Squarespace, and Squarespace will help you take your ideas and put them however you want them, up on the internet, which is like a water cooler of a highway. I think I've made it clear that I do not have any ideas. Well, that's fine. (laughs) But I hope they can help me, too. If you came up with any, Andrew, you could turn, uh, and they were cool, you could turn them into a cool website with Squarespace, (laughs) our sponsor this week. (laughs) Um, We use Squarespace for our website, uh, OverduePodcast.com, and it's pretty good. Um, You can sell products like we have. You can promote your business like we do every week. Um, and you can use beautiful templates created by world-class designers to make sure it looks good, even if you're like Andrew and don't know anything about tech. Um, you don't have to like download anything. It's just right up on their own website, which is kind of weird and recursive, and I love it. 
and they've got built-in search engine optimization to help people find your site. Can you what? Can you tell me um, how many hours out of the day and how many days out of the week they have customer support available, and um, whether it's award-winning or not? Twenty-four-seven, yes. <laughs> okay, it's my new album. Twenty-four-seven, yes. <laughs> Um, if you at home need to make a website, uh, I would recommend the fine folks at Squarespace. Um, and the way that you can do that is to go to squarespace.com slash overdue for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, you can use that code overdue to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That is squarespace.com slash overdue. Like, before McMurphy even gets on the scene, like, we get this, like, I had no idea what my experience of this book was going to be based on the first chapter or so with the chief, where Mm -hmm. it's, you're inside his head, he's talking a lot, you know, he is suffering from schizophrenia and paranoia or something, or is at least exhibiting those symptoms, he is on and off various drugs, it seems, and he is like lending this whole book kind of a surreal quality that I think I read that um, Kesey said he wrote some of it while he was high on peyote or something. So like that yeah. checks out yeah. where he talks about the like the world as this big machine and yeah, everyone right. anyone who's broken gets tossed in one of these you know institutions where they try to fix you. And he also, like, everyone who works for the hospital is maybe they're machine people and they are installing machines inside you to control you. It's all Mm -hmm. part of a thing he calls the combine, Mm -hmm. which I guess is just supposed to be, like, society and the rules it places on you. Um, And he talks a lot about the fog, too. Yeah, go ahead, Frank. No, no, I think you. It's interesting what you both you and Gwen said. Like, I think he is reliable mm. as a narrator um, at of what he hears and sees. But yet, you, which I think actually is one of the primary reasons to read this book is the is the way it's written in that surrealish, psychotropic way mm-hmm. about he'll be talking about what he's hearing and then he slides into a a moment that you can interpret as his dr- uh, drugs kicking in that he was given to by a nurse. So he, like, he'll be mm. looking out the window and commenting on the birds flying around, or he'll be saying the fog's rolling in, or he'll, he'll be able to see circuitry in the walls or hear the combine. And you really know right away, which is a tribute to the writing, that, oh, now we're in his drug-addled brain that's sort of segueing from his reporting of the conversations he's hearing and you sort of understand that that actually makes him very um poignant and very uh likable that's a good point you it's also a tribute to the writing i think that we're calling someone a reliable narrator who is like describing you know fog machines that are controlling (laughs) all the people's you know actions in every way and that there's things in the floor and that there's wires coming out of people and he can see the wires sometimes like he's not your traditional reliable narrator and yet he feels very reliable so you got to give ken kesey some points for that yeah (laughs) it sounds like it sounds like contextually you like kesey does a pretty good job of letting you know the ways in which he might be unreliable so you can like yeah. account for them a little mm-hmm. bit more mm-hmm. yeah yeah, yeah but sure. he, but you have to get used to it you have to like <laughs> as you read it you start understanding that he doesn't say because there is no other narrator other than Bromden so right. you don't know what he's saying he's not saying oh now I'm going to segue into a drug induced hallucination <laughs> sure you, know, right, you right, start right. trusting his voice because yeah. you're like oh the poor guy is actually just given a pill or his whatever his illness might have been may or may not have been right. we n- also know why most of these people are not in or yeah, we don't really know why most of these guys are in this ward to begin with we never know what Bromden did in quotes no to yeah. get there which is interesting right. for Kesey to do. Right. Like he almost makes the point like it almost doesn't matter in mm-hmm. some ways if you're any degree different. Right. Right. Then you're in there. Yeah, we get some we get some background like s- scenes throughout the book where he has a memory of his family or something like that. Like he served in World War II, I think, so maybe he has like some form of PTSD. That's kind of under discussed. Right. And then he talks a lot about how his father. Um, who was a chief, 
um, married a white woman and then took her last name. Um, and Emasculated then that, him. Yes. We just, like said he's a Native American. Yes. Yeah. Or as they say in the book, Indian. Yeah. Yeah. And then he and then that gets kind of rolled into the government taking the tribe's land and right. so that they could build a dam. And so like his name being taken from him is is related to the government taking their property. Right. And then when Bromden as a kid attempts to like confront these people, they treat yeah. him like he's non existent. Yeah. And so that morphs him into the narrator that he yeah. is. Yeah. I thought that scene was the yeah. best scene in the entire That's book. That's what a great yep. scene yep. in that he's a little boy mm-hmm. and these like white people come to discuss taking the land or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he's just scared and intimidated and that he gets angry enough to sort of want them to know because he overhears them, mm-hmm. which is the theme of the book. He overhears all, everything, right. talking derogatorily about what they're going to do. And mm-hmm. he gets so angry. He's like, they're going to hear me. And he starts yelling about their, how they're wrong. And then they have no reaction. And him. he realizes yeah. he's not even being heard. And it was, that was, that a, was a bit of a punch to yeah. the gun. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so the movie doesn't have, you know, it doesn't, it's not told from the chief's perspective. If it, if, if it, it follows, um, McMurphy around the most because he is just like the catalyst for all the stuff that happens in the, in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, the, I think the best scenes in the movie are similarly kind of from the, the chief's point of view. Like once he does begin like speaking to McMurphy, does that, that happens in the yes. book. Too, yes. Right? It does. Um, and it kind of, it, it conflates a lot of that stuff and sort of condenses it into a similar thing. But mm-hmm. like the chief talks about, how his dad was was like a big a big guy like McMurphy is a big guy and not necessarily referring to stature but just in like the way that he lives his life and and the way that people are kind of like drawn to him and and right yeah. he's got a charisma to him but like by the time his dad dies he is you know like a it's mostly alcoholism i think chalked up to but mm-hmm. like yeah yeah you know, he would he would drink out of this bottle and Really, it was the bottle drinking out of him, and and by the time he died, you know, not even his own dogs could recognize him anymore oh, yeah. because they, he was. They so, mentioned like, that in the book. Yeah. 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 Do um, they do the flashbacks in the in the movie? No, they don't really. They don't do flashbacks. Mm. It's all kind of you know you you. It starts when McMurphy comes to the facility for the first time, and it's a similar thing. You know, he's come in from prison. It's left, I think, a little more ambiguous as to whether he's you know, quote unquote sane or not. But I think the opinion of most of the medical professionals there is that he is faking it. Mm-hmm. Um, Am I uh, correct? But then, yeah, it just kind of linearly goes through the story from beginning to end there. There's not a lot of jumping around and, and certainly there are no like drug sequences or, or any anything where the movie tries to get you to like question any of the stuff that you're seeing oh. or, or hearing. Mm-hmm. So, Am I correct that, so let's get, let's shift focus to McMurphy Okay. So I think we can kind of get into the the plot of the thing and then get into kind of the relationships of the thing. But he is he was convicted of a rape, right? Yeah, statutory rape of a 15-year-old. Is yeah. How it is in the uh, movie and then the synopsis I read too, yeah. So he comes in as this like man who's going to shake up the ward and is he crazy? <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> and Right he's off got the such such joy for life, like yes, <laughs> he's just a joie de vivre, yes, criminal, yes. and so like I think something that we we've been talking really kind of positively about what the chief brings to the book, and I was really initially turned off by like man, this I you know knowing that Jack Nicholson is the star of the film and it's this big character that you know is cemented in the 20th century canon. I'm like, man, am I just gonna have to be on this guy's side? Like. I don't. I am not ready to be McMurphy's friend and mm-hmm. hang with him for the rest of this book. Mm-hmm. And for me, the chief provided a good antidote for that. But he really comes in as like he's a bad dude that I guess is going to make our lives better anyway. Yeah, I think they all think he's the coolest dude in the world, right? Yeah. And I mean, I, we've yeah. been joking about it a lot, but this truly, this book's attitude toward women is so depressing and appalling. Every woman character in the book is a complete disaster. Either they're power-hungry, you know, repressive, crazy people like Nurse Ratchet, 
or they are man-hating or man-loving too much mothers <laughs> who are trying to smother their their poor men who are just trying to live their lives and trying to, you know, they're ruining their sexuality and they're making them into mama's boys or they're, you know, just really seriously every single woman in this book is terrible. And I think that the way that we are supposed to think that McMurphy is a hero is directly related to that, right? Like who cares about this girl? It's very vague in the book. They never talk about it. Well, in fact, I would argue that they probably think it's great because look at this amazing way with women that he has. Exactly. Right. I mean, first and foremost, like McMurphy is supposed to be a life force of positivity and, and freedom and all those great things. Like that's, you know, that, in the middle early 60s like sort of like the counterculture rising that's sort of like this guy driven thing and that's for sure and so it's interesting to re- to read it now and see what Gwen just saw and just dis- discussed i mean but like it's inter- it's interesting enough though because he does talk later about his first sexual experience McMurphy and we what know, is it he's he was like 10 and, and the girl, the girl was, was 8, eight. And he said she knew things like, you know, seasoned women didn't know, like, and that she really enjoyed it. But this is the thing that's, that's interesting to me is like, it, why, why in that vignette itself what is what's negative about it? Because he's basically saying this girl was very, there was no downside. She wasn't raped. She enjoyed it. She had a great time. He had a great time. He was in, introduced to it as a great time. I know Gwen's eyes are narrowing at me, but I'm just—I'm <laughs> devil's advocating in here. But, but I mean, this is say, this is as as he describes the experience, right? Yes. I just want to make sure. Okay, cool. right. And he could it's be true, lying. True. You know, he is and not as, reliable at all. It's very possible that he is lying about all of this. Interesting. Yeah. But it's presented as completely uncritical. And like, sure, two children that age can have sex, and it's no problem. Yeah. Like, it's ridiculous. I mean, I, I that was problematic to say the least. Yeah, yeah but right. it's definitely yeah. As a, as a 2019 reader, it yeah. feels problematic because you're also viewing it from the lens of a character that you are watching, you know, degrade women or talk about women in ways as an adult that, like, you can, if you apply that backwards, it makes that feel like a, a weird thing to talk about. It doesn't feel like just a guy sharing his introduction to sexuality. It yeah. feels like it's part of a narrative of conquering and things like that. That Right. But he's supposed, to be, he's supposed to be a very positive force exactly. for life. Exactly. That's why I'm saying that. And it's yeah. also part of... I get it looking back, but he's like I think you're meant to see every experience he has yes. as, a, as a triumph of pleasure and of you know our, our animal needs yep. and our intellectual needs. I mean, he's, well, he's supposed to be a force for good. Right, because he because he blows into this he blows into this facility, and he's supposed to be like opening all these men's eyes to right. what life is really all about. And, exactly, and yeah. he's their savior. Truly, he is yeah. a Christ figure. He is definitely portrayed as a you know an uncomplicated force for good there, and the uncritical eye that is turned toward all of his sexual exploits, no matter who they're with or what age any of the participants are or whether they're willing or not, we really don't know and don't care. He's just presented as positive, positive, positive. Yeah. Well, so let's get, I do want to make sure we give our listeners like a grounding of what the book thinks he's doing to like affect change in the world. I, I will toss out a comparison from Keys Casey himself, I'm inverting his name, um, who said in an interview that his favorite book was Moby Dick, I think. And he looks at McMurphy. This is from an NPR article from, I think, from, I think 2012. He thinks about McMurphy as an Ahab and Bromden as a, as a Queequeg a little bit. So if, if you, if you run it through that lens and then like maybe Ratchet is the white whale or freedom is the white whale. It's hard to know that like, then you look at him maybe a bit more as a flawed, tragic, not a protagonist, but a guy who got us some different, you know, a place different than where we started. And we look at the cost of it. Again, I'm not like, I do think that the book presents him as a positive force and that is a thing worth questioning. But I also think there is maybe, if you apply that lens to it, implicit critique of him inside the text also. Maybe, I don't know. We'll see. And That's it, interesting. I, I think it's like we, what we talk about now is about invisibility and non-agency in yeah. one's life. If you are a 
minority or someone who has never been represented. I think this book is, is saying, and it's saying with complete honesty, and we would say now misguided and un- woke <laughs> yeah. just to use a word right now that these women are these are the women this women's sexuality is they're happy to do it because it pleases the men and they get a lot of pleasure out of it too and that's it there's nothing more complicated than that i think we're, we're going to talk about the nurse ratchet in a minute and that's going to change the game with women a little bit but most all the other women are just like happy to be under mcmurphy basically yeah. Yeah. and happy well, and, and i'm he's happy to be there too so i'm not sure it's not a very complicated tell me, <laughs> <view>. <laughs> tell me if it's played differently in the book than it is in the movie but but um one of the big inciting incidents toward the end of the of the story is um this uh young man named billy who has a stutter yeah um and has had, you know, issues with with women in the past. In the movie, it's like he loved someone from afar and didn't tell her anything about it until he asked her to marry him. And and then bingo bongo, he's in the asylum, I guess. But um, so uh, McMurphy brings in women from the outside and they all party. And then one of them has sex with Billy. And in the movie, it's entirely it's all about what that is like for Billy, like the woman like you you don't check in with her at all it's not yeah. really clear whether she's like a girlfriend of mcmurphy's or just like somebody who he happens to know and you don't really even talk to her at all after nope. this happens like it, it's all about what what it's doing for for billy and and the relationship that he has with his own like sexuality oh, what yeah. what it's like for her is not yeah. important <laughs> so that's a hundred percent the same in the book although i will say in the book i i thought and frank and craig you can tell me if you disagreed but i thought that there was a strong implication that she was a sex worker that she yeah, and her they are explicitly were... yeah referred to as as uh either prostitutes or whores um in the book so and right. I, I think the implication is that he is calling up women he he knows so do you he think can, did they mean yeah. that literally, do you think? I wasn't sure if that was like a literal thing or if he was just calling women whores. I yeah, that was that was the confusion in the in the movie too, because you meet her like he steals a bus and they go to steal a boat and go fishing. He steals a bus? Oh that's <laughs> yeah, like like that. No. In well, the in the film boat. he like he they climbs up the chief and hops the wall and steal and, and grabs the bus that they're gonna drive to some like sanctioned activity. Whoa. And they drive to the dock instead so they can steal a boat and go oh, on that's, fishing. Oh, trip. that's a, that's super different. different in the book. You, <laughs> actually the doctor goes along with them in the book. You um you meet the woman who Candy. sleeps with yeah. Billy yeah. it during that episode and it's like and they go to like a trailer park that that McMurphy knows and pick her up and so it's not clear yeah whether she's his girlfriend or or like a sex my he knows re- or, or what but yeah it's re- it, like I'm saying what I mean to say is it's ambiguous in the movie too my read on it is well, my reaction to it in the moment reading it was that they were probably sex workers that he also has that he personally has relationships with maybe and that like okay especially with her in particular like it seems like it is not just transactional with her even though it is very transactional from a plot perspective um and that he knows people that he can hire or yeah whatever i'm not sure yeah. yeah, but certainly, Andrew, that vibe that you're talking about is the same. Like, nobody cares what Candy thinks about any of this. Yeah. Candy's right. just there as a yeah. prop. In the so book, it, though, it's made, and again, here I go, but it's made clear that every experience Candy has is pleasurable yeah, to her. Right. Like, she, right. he describes Keezy lovely when Billy and Candy are discovered in bed. Uh, Billy, the guy with the stutter, his mother issues. Um they're they're cuddling together like two fat cats sated on milk. I mean, he's yeah. like she's just as like happy, <laughs> at, yeah. As they're like cuddling like kittens, all warm and fluffy, and and she's just like thrilled to be there. And she also makes it's made made clear that she's has a thing for McMurphy and just like oh McMurphy, I'll do right. anything for you. Yeah, and, yeah. Like, yeah. Just is these are pleasant, happy girls. There's another one, Sandy, Candy, and Sandy, of course, um, who are just there's no complication yeah. with them. They're not flawed they're not hurting they're just happy to be where yeah. they are yeah and also i do i find it extremely male the assumption that oh yeah you know of of i think he's a virgin right in his mid-20s yep. would would so he's older a in the woman book yeah. that they would that they would they would both be sated like fat cats in bed afterward 
Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And Craig, to, to push back a little on what you were saying, it's, it's interesting because the Moby Dick stuff, like, I was thinking about that also, partly because... Uh, McMurphy has a pair of underwear that has little white whales yeah, all over yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're yeah. like, yeah, there's only one thing that means. <laughs> but I was thinking more that Nurse Ratchet was Ahab and that and that uh, McMurtry was the white whale. Oh, I, interesting. Yeah. Okay. And not to go too far into like 10th grade, this is symbolism kind of thing. <laughs> but, but the Christ imagery at the end is also extremely intense. And, and so, okay, for librarian is in listeners, Overdue's tagline is, uh, these are books that you should have read by now anyway. I just butchered it, but it, that's the gist, right? Yes, yes. And yeah. so we're going to do a major spoiler right now for the end. Uh, yeah, if you don't want to hear it, you should go ahead a couple minutes. But at the very end, you know, McMurphy dies for the good of the rest of the people. And the chief escapes because McMurtry has... McMurphy. Because, oh, sorry. I can't believe I keep doing that. So... <laughs> He, he only has the power to escape because McMurphy has given it to him. Right? Sure. McMurphy yeah. is, well, he's sacrificed no. or he's killed, but he's sacrificed for the good right. of the rest of them. I mean, I but, think the But Christ it's not McMurphy's is... choice. I mean, the, the uh, Bromden realizes that McMurphy's been beaten and he can't, he can't stay alive to witness the triumph of Ratchet. Yes. He has to die. Yes. Otherwise, but, Ratchet would win forever. But don't you think that that is but tacitly Mer- given showed... as, like, complete 100% he's... approval that, of course, he would want to die? It's There's no doubt in yeah, Bromden's yeah, yeah. mind oh, yeah, yeah. that he it's should kill tidy, him. It's very tidy. Yes, very tidy. Tidily t- cleaned up that Even way. though he fights. Even though McMurphy tidy. fights because he's a life force. And, like, right. he says he makes a point of saying <laughs> yes. how killing McMurphy, uh, smothering him with a pillow, it was difficult because he fought back. Because he is a life force. But yes, I think it's clear the book thinks he has to die. And he's even when he has the electroshock therapy, he's laid out in a cross. Come on. It can't be any more. It can't be any more Christ like than this. It doesn't get more heavy handed than that. Yeah, that's so that that pushes back on the idea that he is like a a a flawed vehicle for improvement and is actually, yes, is their savior. That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, I wanna give you I wanna give whoever you read credit for that, but I I think I can't. No, no, that no, that's (laughs) I mean, that's totally Keezy said that himself. Yeah, Yeah, he's Keezy. Um, (laughs) Oh whatever critic was uh, the author of the book. Let's set up the know you better you know yourself. Now that we've talked about the end of the book, let's go back to the beginning and (laughs) make sure we, we give folks a rundown of like what is the Ratchet McMurphy fight? Like how does that where does that start and where does that go? Yeah, because Ratchet, like, that becomes kind of idiomatic later, yeah. right? Like, isn't that used to describe, like, a nurse who is, yeah. who is bad yeah. now? Yeah. Yes. So it's yes. interesting that that's the, that's the enduring thing when, this, when McMurphy does so many crappy things in this book. Yeah. Because <laughs> we're supposed yeah. to remember how, how bad the nurse was. But, yeah, go for it. Yeah. So, Gwen, do you want to kind of start us off? Like, what is the the state of play and how does McMurphy mess it up? So Nurse Ratchet rules with an iron fist and she oversees the ward. She makes all the rules. She is cruel and cold and uh, does not care much about the therapeutic value of anything. She shames people into falling into line and really like obedience and servitude and, you know, staying on the straight and narrow path is her, is her nectar. It's the only thing she wants out of these men um, on the ward. And so she, so she, you know, is, is in charge obviously of this place. Even the doctors sort of do whatever she wants. Um, and when McMurphy comes, he decides that he's going to challenge her for dominance of this ward because he sees it in her. Yeah. And the thing he is, she's very her. manipulative. She's she's an expert in power plays. We probably all ran across people like this at some point. And what's interesting is that, as we said before, Bromden, um, the Native American, is the narrator of this, and you never get any other view of her. Yeah, of Ratchet. Yeah. He, right. You like you, Kesey easily could have put in the book like he saw a moment of vulnerability in her or or something. But you just get this pure. She's part of the combine. She's part of the society to suppress anything that doesn't work within her personal power yeah. play. Well, that's and interesting. Because the because the chief also you know, he gives us all the background on like how she is specially selected like three or four 
of these black men to be her boys on the ward. And that's mm-hmm. where like some of the books like latent and not so uh, latent racism uh, makes itself yeah. known. Um, uh. But she has like carefully selected these people and is, you know, doing whatever she wants, regardless of what the doctors want. And the chief can be anywhere and listen to people and hear things he's not supposed to. And you're right, Frank, he never hears her like, you know, or, or watches her like put her head down on her desk and go, Oh God, this is just so hard. I've really, I really (laughs) believe in the power of good men. And the only way to get them there is this way. Like there's not even, no, she is a robot lady with big boobs who is designed to crush us. Like that is the truth of the matter. Um, And McMurphy's, I think like they basically bet him the other dudes on the ward who previously had a leader named like Harding, right. Is like, I bet that you can't break her control over us without, you know, getting shock therapy or lobotomized or both. And he's like, I'm, I'll, I'm going to do it. Here I go. Right. I mean, the premise is that Ratchet, the nurse, the head nurse of the ward is in full control. She's gotten all the inmates or inhabitants under her control and they believe it. Mm -hmm. And McMurphy comes in as a life force. That's going to disrupt that for sure. And then it becomes a battle between the two of them in lots of ways. Yeah. Um, But I was going to ask somebody, I forgot, like there's, well, I guess, oh, that's one way I realized that that how this isn't to be taught in high school in some ways, or just be a book about, she's almost like representing management or middle management and the sort of like power, power for power's sake. What Mm -hmm. what kept coming up for me was that how, and I think all of us might encounter this in our work lives at some point, depending on the personalities we work with, where it for Ratchet, it's not about like actually actively trying to heal these guys or figure out a way to make their lives better. It's solely personally about power mm-hmm. now. It has nothing to do with anything else, really. Yeah. They're just vehicles for her own power. It's like amazing how little it has to do with her actual job description when yeah. you really think about it. And think about how we've encountered that. Like when you realize everything you do has nothing to do with pushing forward the mission of what you're supposed to be doing. It has. Per- completely to do with your own personal sense of power and that's it isn't that crazy that isn't is that amazing crazy. yeah i think it is <laughs> <laughs> but then i meant then the second part was does is there a reason that ratchet has to be a woman because i was also thinking in this book it could have been a guy but we I don't mean, hate guys enough yeah well, well I, we I, only I, hate the, women enough to make let me hear from ratchets. the men uh, oh yeah i'm sorry when, yeah, let, let me let me uh, know the trap shut so can hear the guys down oh my god this is going to be terrible. I Edit knew we were going to get to this I place. Gwen, um, anyway, I think in at least in the in the movie, my understanding of of movie Ratchet and of the staff and everything is it's kind of flattened a lot, and you don't you don't get quite as much like as many examples as you do in the book of like why she's bad and like specific things that she's done. Um, but I, you know the the way that she attains and like practices her power is very like soft power and very like subtle and manipulative in ways that I think would read as like stereotypically feminine, especially at the, at the time. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, Mm -hmm. that, that is one, that's certainly one element of of what's going on with her. The the big scene that, and I think McMurphy makes this argument that it's because she's a woman and she is neutering them essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, it is it is worth pointing out that I think we learn later in the book that maybe McMurphy and the chief are the only people on this ward against their will. Everyone else there initially at least checked themselves in or were part of that process and then they yeah. choose to stay there. So mm-hmm. part of what McMurphy is bringing to these or what he sees that he is bringing to these guys is like the will to go back out there and live again. Um and the big scene that really sets him off is like a group therapy scene where Ratchet is encouraging everyone to weigh in on like one guy's issues. I don't remember which one. It might be Harding. It might be a different person where they're just like picking him apart. And yeah. you can see a version of that that is just like po- potentially positive group therapy where someone talks about some stuff they're dealing with and everyone kind of weighs in. Um, but the version that we are at least told about or shown is it's very negative it's very snipey it's very pecking and that's the version that mcmurphy sees and says like how is she letting you all like cut each other's balls off is basically what he says 
Mm-hmm. Like you should not succumb to that. You're men by God. Like let's rule this place. So that to me, Frank is like the book sets up that it has to be a woman because it has to do with their like, you know, neutered masculinity. Um, yeah. Towards the end, you're right. I just remember towards the end of the book and I wanted to uh, mark the page, but it's it uh, Harding, I think says something like, well, whatever happens, at least we're, we've become men again. Yes, yes. So yes, yeah, that right. even Harding, who I think is gay, yeah. who's basically I believe so. Yeah, in there yeah. because he's gay. Yeah, he says that. Um, yeah. Okay. Why? Well, and <laughs> when, when they when um, the one of the moments where McMurphy actually gets kind of shook, and I don't know how it's portrayed in the film or not, Andrew, but they go they like organize a, a pool day. They're all gonna go hang out in the pool together. Um, and I think he talks to like the lifeguard who has clearly had either he's had a bunch of ECT uh, or he's I don't he may have had a lobotomy. I don't remember. Um, mm. But that guy like he is he should be the picture of like macho virility. And McMurphy tries to like pal around with him as maybe a future ally in the in the hospital. And then he realizes that that guy completely lost the fight to someone like Ratchet, if not her directly. And right. that's that's where you see McMurphy go like, oh, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can do this. Uh, no, there's, there, that scene's not in the movie. I think the closest analog is maybe one of the therapy scenes where I think it's Cheswick. Like they yeah, have been yeah. gambling, they've been gambling cigarettes over, over cards. And so Ratchet has taken it upon herself to ration their cigarettes. And yeah. Cheswick is like, I'm just, I just want my cigarettes. I don't want his or his or his. I want my cigarettes because they're mine. And that like sets him off and everybody else starts going off and like people need to be physically restrained. And I think that's the, that is where you see McMurphy one, like see kind of the control and power that Ratched exercises over these, these dudes. And yeah. also two, it's the first time I think he gets himself into a situation that is out of his control yeah, like i think yeah. i think for most of the for most of the film he feels very much like the ringleader and very much like he can make these guys do whatever he wants which if you're setting ratchet up to be bad because that's what she does like that introduces a whole bunch of extra stuff huh. too but but yeah i think that's the closest you get to that, that pool scene you described yeah craig something you said made me realize that, that was so shocking and made me feel the book was definitely when i realized how metaphorical it was about how most of the inmates are there voluntarily. Yeah. Because I, I was actually surprised at some things when they were allowed to leave to go to that fishing trip thing. I was like, wouldn't Nurse Ratchet want to keep much, much more control? And it made you realize that the uh, institution wasn't as um, locked down as a prison might be mm-hmm. as you were, uh, as one or I was originally thinking it was. Um, that And that made it even more in- powerful and more... Um, again metaphorical in that they were there because because of the way she wielded and abused their mental states to just yeah. attain domination over them they could leave at any time and in fact spoiler alert a lot of them do at the end um so that made it even more stunning and more of a commentary on society and certainly very early 60s and that he was saying like society has this hold on us like coming out of the 50s very conformist very regimented and the busting up of the 60s saying mm-hmm. we have to break through and break out of this yeah I, there was a lot of that in her i think especially toward the end i again i'm talking about the last like 20 pages because those had a real that I, I felt like the end of this book had a, had a bigger impact on me than all the rest of it combined mm-hmm. um but the way that it ends like sort of mcmurphy's last gasp is that he attacks her yeah. um, and rips off her shirt. And so her breasts are exposed to everyone. And there's a whole bunch of stuff about her nipples and let's sexualize her as much as possible. And then he tries to strangle her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I thought that it was really, it was, it's a very fitting last act of his, right? Like the, you kind of mm. can't put it more succinctly than that. He I actually revealed to me like the revealing of her breasts, which are always commented on being very large. Mm-hmm. She's a middle-aged woman. Is that like I mean, I don't know if that matters actually. I just was saying, oh, she's middle-aged. She can't be that sexualized. Nice. Great, thanks, nice, Frank. good. Oh, f- <laughs> well, I'm middle-aged. Well, I mean, I'm the the movie doesn't. It does do it. 
The movie does do the strangulation part, does not do any of the like yeah. breast exposing oh, really? sexual part. So but I, it's I, sort I, of was downplayed there almost. I forget why I started they, talking about he this. Almost, I mean, it. Yeah, there is. It's very sexist. But wait, that, there was he, a, I think he does that to to because she's stru- she's called a robot. Like she, he reveals her body. Oh, that's to it. show yes. her. Like, Thank to, you. She, now she's right. just a woman. Right. That she's not. This, oh she's yeah. Not a powerful. Robot. Like she's just a woman. That's exactly. the ultimate humiliation for her because mm-hmm. she doesn't want to be sexualized. She doesn't want to be a woman. Right. In the, in the the words of this book, she wants right. to be this power, pure right. power object. It, yes. Yes. And it also, I I did have to sort of think about the war when they were talking about this, because I think you could also read her as like a symbol of fascism too, that there's this sort of like, you know, oppressive stay in line. You must conform to everything kind of overarching control that then someone releases. Right. And then that person can only escape it through death. Like, I think that there, I think there's, there's an element of that as well. Although I was thinking a lot about, which which war and which conflict they were talking about and I did there was there were a couple hints that it was World War Two but then I also thought it might be Korea and it in addition to this being in the middle of like the psychotropic drug stuff it's also kind of in the middle of you know armed conflicts that saw a lot of loss of life yeah, yeah. he I think he tried to he says he based you know some of the characters on folks that he actually met in the VA where he worked and took all those drugs um except for McMurphy, um, who he, like, talked about being this John Wayne character that everybody was, like, hungry for, who, Mm. you know, wasn't actually there. Um, Miss Ratchet was, like, based on a real person, theoretically, um, who he said he met later, and she was smaller than he remembered. Um, Mm. This is from a New York Times article. Do you remember me, Nurse Ratchet, she said. Uh, she was much smaller than I remembered and a whole lot more human. I didn't know what to say, whether to apologize or what. It was a tremendous relief huh. to me to find that she didn't hold it against me because you don't want someone like that walking around out there. Uh, interesting. Wow. Was her name really <laughs> Nurse Ratched? I don't think so. It was in spot, okay. but in, you know, okay. least, I don't believe so. So she's um, like, oh, I'm ner- I'm the one that you based that character on. Yes, 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 okay. yes. Okay. I imagine he would have run into some legal troubles if he had <laughs> named this person yeah. after a real nurse. I'm disappointed, frankly. I wanted her real name to be Ratchet. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's funny. That's the name that survives, like, in popular culture. Yes, yeah. yeah. yeah like, right. a, you're a nurse Ratchet. I thought until I read this book, I thought it was Ratchet with a T. Me too. Ratchet. Yeah, I thought so too. Yeah. She's actually not called Nurse Ratchet. She's called Miss Ratchet, but... In the movie, I think she might be, an, an, um, that's the term that's become, like, I guess the a thing. combination of Big Nurse and Miss Ratchet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's oh, the, yeah. yeah, she's, she's a Nurse Ratchet in the movie, typically. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like, from the perspective of most of the, most of the people who talk to her. Um, so, if we're, if we're winding down, I did just want to really quickly run down some of the cast of the movie, because it's, like, a star-studded yeah. Affair. Oh yeah. With like all these with all these actors who went into being all this extra stuff in the in the seventies, eighties, nineties and oh, yeah. yeah. Um, who who does so, play Nurse Ratchet? Because uh, I, Nurse Ratchet is played by Louise Fletcher, who yeah. among many other things, I'm a giant nerd, so I know her best as uh, Don't tell me. I bet I know a, the movie. A, <laughs> um, it's not even movie. She, from she's Mars. a She's a deeply manipulative uh, religious figure on oh. Star Trek Deep Space Nine. <laughs> <laughs> for its entire Frank, run. Frank she's is very, so very disappointed yeah. that that I, He really is. You should see his face. <laughs> no. Cons- I thought it was Invasion space from fell. Mars where she ends up no, with No, Deep Space Nine, around. the best Star Trek. It's really great. Go watch it. Um, uh, Brad Dourif is a uh, Billy. Oh. Uh, he was, uh, Craig and I know him best, I think, as Doc Cochran on Deadwood, but yep. he also was in a ton of other stuff. He was Wormtongue in the Lord of the Rings movies. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, Christopher Lloyd plays a character. Uh, Danny DeVito plays Martini, and he also played that role in the stage production mm. earlier. Yeah, actually, which, which starred Kirk Douglas, I believe, as yeah. McMurphy. Yeah. yeah. Well, so Michael Douglas are... produced the movie. Kirk yes. Douglas's son. So yeah. there's a connection yeah. right there. Yeah. So those are those are the biggest ones. But yeah, I, I oh. had forgotten. I think because I watched the movie a lot of years ago, like I'd forgotten most of the stuff about it, and. I didn't look anything up about it before I started watching it. I was like, wow, I know like all of these guys. <laughs> That's yeah. wild. Well, I Danny get... DeVito and L- Christopher Lloyd both went on Taxi together. Ooh. Right. The taxi yeah. show. And then also Louise Fletcher and Jack Nicholson both won Academy Awards Best Actor, Best Actor. Really? And then yeah. also won Best Picture. 
Yeah, it was mm. a very yeah. celebrated film. I think you were, you, and this is, maybe will wind us up, but like you were saying earlier, Gwen, that like the wind the stuff us. about authority wind us down rather. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, I'll get wound up. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, kind of like the the authority and the power dynamics and like what it is to fit in and conform in the world is like one thing the book is doing, and I think maybe is like what people remember, but. I, and it sounds like we kind of shared uh, all of us who read it like a reaction to like the the gender politics of this book are messed up and I don't know that people <laughs> have like carried that maybe like they don't they haven't carried that alongside with the like message about breaking free and like I, I just feel like the book is at war with itself in a way in terms of what is re- it's yeah. remembered for and what it's effective yeah. at doing. I feel like it's it's the kind of thing that would only be like reevaluated if the movie were to be redone yeah. and to come out again. And in, in like today's think piece culture, I think at that point people mm-hmm. would start to go back and revisit a lot of things. But that's really know. yeah, I think that's I think that is very correct. I think the racism is there too. Yeah, because that's this true. is I mean, the racism is even more casual than the the sexism yeah. i think because the racism is just like they just Embedded. throw stuff around there's, it's worse there's one frankly. it is it is yeah. kind of worse because there there's no thought given to it whatsoever there's one there's another nurse who's portrayed as like a better nicer nurse who's just called a racial slur the entire yeah. time she like doesn't yep. even have a name she's, she's just known the whatever right and yeah. i i found that also very troubling and you know it's hard like I know that with historical books, there's sometimes a really good reason to take off your 21st century glasses and put on the 1962 glasses and try to read it that way. But when it's so embedded like this, and you're right, Craig, like when it's when it's not remembered in this way, it makes it all the more hard for me to get past that and and look at what the book is, quote unquote, supposed to be about. Yeah, yeah definitely in the racial uh, interactions it's it just seems like that sort of invisible privileged like yeah. to use the word of the day like point of view um the sexism gets more complicated in, in terms of like then and now but mm-hmm. um uh yeah i forgot what i was gonna say whatever but it, but it does <laughs> but it does sound like um it does sound like y'all found value in like the way it was written mm-hmm. and in you know in bromden's perspective yeah. as yeah. the as the protagonist and and oh, a lot of the characters are problematic as they are i guess they are like very um very like fully sketched yes and for like, sure. memorable right yeah so. also the writing just the mm-hmm. writing itself is very creative and psychedelic and right is interesting to read the writing is great and the yeah. characters are so well differentiated like you really it's a it's a very large cast of characters if people haven't figured that out by this conversation yet there's a lot of men in this ward and they're they're really really well defined like you always know yeah. who you never have to go back and be like oh wait which one was that like it's really clear the whole time what is so, this? and that's that's a credit to the writing I was going to say before about about then and now in, ter- in terms of uh, creating enemies or creating representations of oppression is mm. it seems now with a more like, you know, humane understanding of we're all human in some ways we're evolving that way. Uh, it's more difficult in quotes to create villains because without people criticizing and saying, well, you're making that person a villain because they are x y and z sure and so it becomes more difficult to demonize it becomes more de- i just about to say it becomes more demon difficult to demonize women and other minority and minorities like <laughs> oh what a shame darn it <laughs> so much for my create this is terrible <laughs> um i yeah so you but happily so so it's sort of i wonder if that has anything to do with the rise of science fiction <laughs> Hmm. You know what, what I mean? So we can like demonize aliens instead. Yeah. Well, you can. <laughs> well, you need it when you run out of real others. You need to go exactly out and other right. other some fictional beings. That's yeah. exactly right, Andrew. I mean, I think that's true because it's like we need seem to need to create others, and now it's like moved into this the uh, superhuman realm. Like mm-hmm. it's now no longer can be safely done within the human realm. Who's the who does the woman play on Star Trek, Andrew? Um, oh, I'd have to look up. No, the one you that you referred to. Yeah, Louise Fletcher uh, plays one of your favorite characters. Uh, Win Adami is her name. (laughs) You didn't know. Is she an alien? Andrew. (laughs) She is an alien. She's from the planet Bajor. Nice. Now, what does she do? She is. Um, she's sort. She's a okay. So in Star Trek: Deep Space Nine. (laughs) Commander Benjamin Sisko goes to Deep Space Nine, which is on the far frontiers of the Federation, 
and they're going to help this planet Bajor, which just like escaped this 50 year occupation by this other force. They're going to help them kind of rehabilitate their planet and rebuild their systems and then maybe join the Federation when they're ready. And then he goes into a wormhole and like talks to aliens that are like a big deal in this planet's religion. Mm-hmm. And so he is this unique figure in that he is both an outsider, but he's also sort of ordained by the the people that these Bajorans like revere and then the religious institution, which is represented by uh, Louise Fletcher has like a, has a lot of problems with that. Like there's a lot of conflict to be like mined there. And then she also is just kind of power hungry and looking to build up her own influence in other ways anyway. So over the course of seven seasons full of 22 episode hour long shows, That uh, relationship is thoroughly mined, let's say. <laughs> wow. Well, you so have she's to, Nurse Ratchet, but an alien. You have to check out, she also plays Linda Blair's therapist in The Exorcist Part Ooh. 2. <laughs> Louise Fletcher. Well, quite a, I think Louise Fletcher has quit quite a career. Yeah, right. <laughs> maybe, maybe next time we'll read another book that Louise Fletcher starred in the adaptation of. I'm sure we can find another one. Yeah. I think um, next just time, read a Deep Space Nine novelization. Yeah, perfect. I was just going to yeah. say that. I really think next time you should read a Deep Space Nine novelization and the three of us will watch a Deep Space Nine episode. <laughs> we'll watch and then the we can entire talk about it. I want to do the watching for <laughs> <Okay>. once. <laughs> Let's make Andrew read. Yes. Gwen, Even yeah. if it is a novelization of a TV show. Do you know that I have never seen one moment of Star Trek? I have <gasps> not seen one moment of Even one I have. show. <laughs> Well, if you are interested, I can I can help you with that. If you're not, then that's also fine. I, maybe I am. I think our fourth overdue episode is, should be about that. Ooh. I watched the original show with my dad. It was a Aww. bonding dad thing. Aww. Yeah, yeah not too. the time it was released. It was in reruns. <laughs> that yeah, same. Like I think I know the, the Sci-Fi Channel re-released them all in like the '90s, and Dad showed showed us all of them and. Yeah. The movies and all that stuff. Yeah. Dad show. Aww. Yeah. Dad show. <laughs> well, Gwen and Frank, thank you both for joining us. Uh, thank you both. This was so much fun. And chatting about the cuckoo's nest with us. If And Star Trek. I guess. Yeah, also that. <laughs> and Louise Fletcher's career. Um, you know, I if... wish I could say this was fun, but... Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I love playing with the boys. <laughs> the overdue boys. <laughs> If overdue folks, if overdue folks want to find y'all, where should they Craig's go? Craig's like you're cut off. You guys are cut off. <laughs> okay, sorry, sorry. Um, if overdue would, folks would like to find us, yes. they can go to nypl.org/podcast and check out our blog posts. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us in all the places that you get podcasts. The librarian is in. Yes. The librarian is in. Great. Um, well, thanks. If folks listening want to yell at us online, they can do that at Twitter or Facebook.com slash OverduePod uh, or send us an email at OverduePod at gmail.com. Andrew, the website, hit me. OverduePodcast.com. What's up there? Bunch of stuff. Care to elaborate? No. Briefly? Yeah. Are there any baby pictures? No. There are no baby pictures oh, up there. Oh, man. Don't go yeah. there. I, I will occasionally tweet them on my own account, Andrew writes, and uh, then delete them later. So yes. eagle-eyed <laughs> listeners will have seen some already. Sure. Um, we also have links to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Patreon, a bunch of other stuff up on the website. There, Craig, are you happy now? Yeah, I am happy. Thanks so much. And thanks again <laughs> one last time to Gwen and Frank for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thank oh, you. thank you. All right, everybody. Thank you for All listening. Right. Until we talk to you next time, try to be happy. <laughs> That was a HeadGum Podcast.